Yesterday, I was standing in my kitchen making coffee and watching the head of Instagram tell me that Facebook had changed its corporate name to Meta. He said they're envisioning this metaverse, which is an internet that you're not on but in, and that in 15 years we'll likely be in the internet all the time, and that there will be even less delineation between real and virtual than there already is. So I was sitting there with my coffee, kind of reeling from this dystopian Zuckerberg vision and looking around my apartment and seeing all these little piles of books that have collected on different surfaces, like physical tactile books made of paper and ink. And I thought, how are books surviving this? Isn't it surprising that we still read? I'm so relieved that we still read. We're all sitting here trying to meditate and resist technologies that are built to addict us. But the book industry is still thriving. Almost $88 billion worth of books were sold in 2020 around the world. And that number is projected to grow to more than $92 billion this year. We read hard things. We read easy things. We read to make things make sense. We read to empathize. Sure, sometimes we read digital books. Sometimes we listen to books. But we still read. Honestly, go books. You know, fight the power. This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. This weekend, we're talking about books. The winner of the prestigious Booker Prize will be announced Wednesday, and two of my colleagues will tell us what it's like to judge it. We'll also look at the literary world and how it's changed over the years, with a high-profile literary agent who's seen it all, and with FT columnist Simon Cooper, who's written books right through it. But first up, Sunday marks the first day of COP26 in Glasgow. It's the UN Climate Change Conference and the most important climate summit of the year. You may remember COP21 is where the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. And COP24 in 2019, that's the one Greta Thunberg sailed to from Europe and gave that iconic speech. You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. A lot is riding on this year. And in anticipation, I spoke with my colleague, Simon Mundy. He's en route to COP right now. But he's not on just to talk about COP. I wanted to know about this journey he just took to 26 countries in two years to figure out how the climate crisis is actually affecting the lives of people around the world. He wrote a book about it. It's full of stories, and it's out this week. It's called Race for Tomorrow. Imagine a global journey that starts in Siberia. Simon meets a few people in Russia. They're hunting the bones of woolly mammoths, which are turning up as the permafrost melts. They're mostly selling those bones to China. We're in 2017, and Simon's on this trip mapping out this idea for a book about the way that climate change is being experienced around the world. He wants to talk to people who are rich and poor, people who have decision-making power and who don't. So Simon quits his job at the FT, and he goes to 26 countries, from Iceland to the Maldives to the Philippines to Saudi Arabia, Israel, Brazil. And now here we are. It's 2021, and he's back at the FT. He's written the book, and he's with us to talk about it. When I sit down with Simon, the first thing I want to know is where he'd like to go back to. And he says, Mongolia. Then I ask him, Simon, is there a place that you... um, likely won't get to visit again because of climate change? That's a good question. Um, there's someone I'll never meet again because of climate change. Uh, his name is, is his name was Conrad Steffen. Uh, he was a, a scientist 
Um, I met him in August 2020 in, in Greenland. You have some icebergs in the back? Yeah. Camera. Oh, it's diffuse light. I use the same camera. Yeah, I love this camera. Um, yeah. This is one of the great climate scientists um, of the modern era. Uh, he spent 30 years. Every year he went out to uh, the Greenland ice sheets. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was thought that the ice sheets responded to climatic changes over the time span of, of centuries. Mm -hmm. But he realized that the Greenland ice sheet was changing and shrinking and melting much more quickly than scientists had previously thought. And there we understood that Greenland is no longer in balance. Whatever falls as snow during the winter and spring actually melts away during the summer, and it also melts part of the ice underneath. And that means we actually lose more ice in Greenland than we can accumulate by snowfall during the wintertime. Simon told me that when he met Conrad Stefan in 2020, Stefan was just a year away from retirement. He had built up this camp in Greenland. It was called Swiss Camp because he was Swiss. It was the spot where he and his graduate students would go every year to do their experiments. And it sounds like they had a really great time. The researchers would cook each other three-course dinners every night after going on the ice. But because Stefan was about to retire and no one wanted to maintain Swiss camp, they were making plans to demolish it. The day after we met, he was flying over to Swiss camp to do, do another expedition there, a smaller one, because COVID had disrupted the plan trip in the spring and he was telling me it's getting really dangerous up there mm. these crevasses were opening up on the ice sheets um, he said when he started going there in the early 1990s there were no crevasses in that area of the ice sheet now he said they're everywhere and it's not safe to walk around wow and three days after he arrived so four days after we met he was uh working on the ice sheets um there was a snowstorm the visibility was bad and he he fell into one of those crevasses and he was never seen again. So, you know, people often talk about climate change as this sort of slow-burning thing that will create dangers in the future. That's just one example of the many people who have already lost their lives as a direct result of things that are attributed by scientists to climate change. Um, I mean, I hope that he is... Is he, like, known as sort of heroic? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, no, he absolutely is. Wow, what a contribution. Simon, I'd love to hear some stories of innovation that you witnessed from people. They seem to range from kind of wild and independent, like I'm thinking of the project to revive the woolly mammoth, um, to also big official scientific enterprises like trapping carbon dioxide under Iceland. So I visited Iceland. It's a place called Helisheide. It's the biggest geothermal power plant in Iceland, one of the biggest in the world. And there... There is a system that has been built to suck carbon dioxide from the air, mix it with water, pump it underground, and turn it into stone. Here behind me, we have the gas capture plant that captures the CO2 that Carpix injects uh, underground. This process where CO2 turns into stone, it happens naturally in Iceland. It's happening all the time, but it takes hundreds of years. And scientists, including Edda Aradotir, who you just heard, they proved that it can actually be done in just two years. It's a new process and something that just could help us avoid climate disaster. 
I personally think you should look out for more from these guys. I think they've yeah. all they've already attracted some serious interest. So, for example, Bill Gates is paying them to offset his carbon emissions. Microsoft is doing the same. Audi, Stripe. I wanted to ask Simon about one other thing, a video I saw on his YouTube channel where he goes down this incredibly claustrophobic looking mine. It's somewhere between 20 and 40 feet deep, and it looks like he was lowered into it in a bucket. The mine is located in Kowezi in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's a cobalt mine, and the local men there are looking for cobalt so they can sell it to electric car companies, which use cobalt in their batteries. It's tricky, though. Electric cars are something we think of as good and green, and we're relying on them more than ever to get us out of this climate change disaster. But are they all good? Can we talk about that? Can you tell me about the cobalt miners in in the Congo? Yeah, all big and powerful industries require scrutiny. And the electric car industry is now a big and powerful industry. And therefore, like any other big industry, it requires scrutiny. The issues here are primarily in terms of the the supply chain um, and especially the the sourcing of raw materials. So I spent a few weeks in Congo, mainly in a town called Kolwezi, which is in the southeast of the country. And this is right at the heart of the copper and cobalt belt um, of Congo. And in this one area in particular of Kolwezi, it's called Kasulo, that's the name of the neighborhood. According to every uh, version of the story that I've heard, it all started when a man was digging a hole for a latrine behind his house with a shovel. And then he stumbled across a seam of cobalt. And everyone in that area knows what cobalt looks like because it's a mining area. People have worked in the mines. So he then started digging a pit for privacy because he didn't want anybody else to know that he struck a seam of cobalt. He started digging a pit inside his house. He dug a mine shaft inside his house and started taking out cobalt in sacks under cover of darkness. He went to a marketplace on the edge of town where there were various um, traders who bought and sold minerals that were found in all sorts of places. Mm-hmm. But then the secret got out, and then everybody in the neighborhood started digging up their houses, digging around their houses, um, digging up cobalt and and getting, by their standards, rich. And it became mm-hmm. this rather chaotic situation. These mines are, of course, incredibly unsafe, and the Congolese government knows that. Most of the mines in Congo are now regulated and under the control of large mining companies based in England and China. But Simon says that by the most recent estimate, there are still more than 100,000 informal miners in the region. And I, I, I went down one of these, these mine shafts. I, I just thought it was important to try and get an understanding of what it's like down there. I, I don't know if any yeah. foreigner has done that before, and it was not. Uh, it was quite a scary experience, to be honest. The ground level of Kasulo is about 12 meters overhead. And a lot of the pits here are much deeper, actually. Some of them go to 20 or 30 meters deep. You know, uh, the you, you get down there, um, the, uh, it's difficult just, enough getting down there, to be honest. You have to sort of go down a bit like a Victorian chimney sweep. You know, you're barefoot, you're just sort of using your hands and feet to get down and sort of bracing yourself against the, the edges of the shafts. Uh, very claustrophobic. And then you get down there and it's incredibly hot, it's incredibly stuffy. And these guys 
They would spend 10 hours a day down there, just wow. hammering away at the edges of this underground chamber, and knowing that from time to time, the chamber would just collapse and kill them. Right. Um, so I only had 15 minutes down there, but that was more than long enough for me. Simon, um, you know, we have a few other segments this week about the publishing industry, and it, it made me think a little bit about your book. Who did you write it for? This book is for people who want to understand more about climate change and the energy transition. And I think many people at the moment, I was in the same boat before I started this project, just feel quite overwhelmed by the amount of information on this subject, by the amount of heated rhetoric on all sides of the conversation. So I'm hoping that this can be a really good way in. Simon, thank you so much for joining me and uh, best of luck at COP. Many thanks. Simon's also written the magazine cover this week. You can find that link in the show notes. You can also find a link there to all of our COP coverage, which will be happening over the next two weeks. That'll be in our climate hub. It's called Climate Capital. And on Wednesday, November 3rd, which is one of the biggest days of the summit, our paywall is actually lifting. We don't do it very often, but the entire FT.com site will be free to read. In the meantime, let's talk about the other huge annual event happening this week. The announcement of the winner of the 2021 Booker Prize. This Wednesday, five judges are picking a winner from a short list of six novels. They include Nadifa Mohammed's The Fortune Men and Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle, which I'm actually reading now and it's very good. I would recommend it. We're going to get an inside look at judging a prize this big. It turns out it has always been kind of a Herculean endeavor. I was young and green, and it was quite a, hmm, it was quite a turbulent experience, to be honest. <laughs> um, in those days, it was a, a kind of literary blood sport. That's Jan Daly. She's the FT's arts editor. And Jan was a judge for the prize back in 1997. The Booker is one of the most prestigious literary awards. Salman Rushdie, Arundhati Roy, Bernadine Evaristo, they've all been winners. It's also pretty controversial, and it's been a source of intense conflict over the years. This year, the judges threw out their own rules and selected not one, but two winners. There's a real problem with this novel in that the absent wife never exists at all. I intend, as a revolutionary writer, to share this prize. I'm actually going to give half the prize to the London-based Black Panther movement. She's clearly someone he didn't actually like very much. It matches enormously. It's a novel about him on a quest. The writer described the decision as straightforwardly daft, saying including American writers will reduce the chances of other writers. Fiction is so preposterously subjective to judge. Booker judging works like this. There are five judges, often they're writers, critics, artists, academics, public figures. One spot is traditionally held by a journalist, and sometimes it's held by one of ours. This year, it's my colleague, Horatia Herod. But before we get into this year's judging, we went to Jan because she is the keeper of the old school literary gossip. I think I realized for the first time then that I had absolutely no skills in committee politics. And I was trumped at every turn. 
<laughs> I hadn't realized that being on a panel of clever people can be a very political business. And I was hopeless at it. In those days, the organizer of the Booker Prize was the wonderful Martin Goff, who oversaw the Booker for many, many years. He was the administrator, but also he kind of produced it like a magician out of a hat. And he was a naughty old thing. And if he was still around, he probably wouldn't mind my saying that because he swore us all to secrecy. Of course, it was all completely under wraps and you must all adhere to that. And then just about every time we had a meeting, a day or two later, there would be something in one of the papers, a gossip column piece about how, oh, you know, they had a fight about this title or that title's being chucked out. And I think, well, how did that get in there? I wonder. Martin was actually a brilliant publicist and he knew perfectly well that to fuel it through the press and pretend that this was some hot leak, in fact, it probably came directly from him. This year, the Booker judging was a bit more by the book. It happened entirely over Zoom, too, which also made it a bit more polite. Horatia was a judge this year. She's associate editor of FT Weekend, and we got her to agree to tell us about it, but her one condition was that she couldn't disclose any secrets from the room. How did you come to judge the booker? Yeah, it's the first time I've been asked. Every year in the past, they have a sort of incredibly uh, lavish and wonderful dinner to celebrate the Booker Prize. Anyway, I was never invited to that. Uh, (laughs) So it was a great surprise when um, Gabby Wood, who administrates the prize, rang me up and asked if I would like to do it. It was a kind of, yeah, a huge surprise and an honor. And then I had to sort of weigh up the commitment because it is pretty intense. Yeah. What's the commitment? I mean, how many books did you have to read? Yeah. So it's 158 books this year. Oh my God, really? I didn't realize. (laughs) That reading process is spread over around six months. So it's not that you have the full year. (laughs) All five judges have to read everything. My wife would joke that they needed a support group for the partners of judges (laughs) because I was barely able to sort of speak to her for six months. Okay, so how many, what what did that average for you? Like how many books did you have to read a a, a month, a week? I guess a day you had to read a book. Did you have to read a book a day? Roughly speaking, yeah, because every month we would have a meeting and usually in the run-up to that meeting, we would read between 25 and 30 books. So yeah, it does work out (laughs) at about one a day. I mean, it meant that I spent obviously all weekend mornings and evenings, and then I had my working day in the middle. But, you know, I'm quite good at reading while I walk. (laughs) That proved to be quite helpful. Uh, And of course, it was lockdown. So Mm. it felt much more intense and isolated than I think it already would. But actually... It is possible. I think you get into a rhythm. And of course, the meetings themselves, which were a kind of lifeline. Sometimes it felt like going into a therapy session because it was like, here we are, these five crazed people who are going (laughs) through quite an intense process. And we can only talk to each other about this. This experience of sharing your opinions on so many different styles of literature with the same small group, that was a learning exercise, too. The, the kind of nerve-wracking thing, apart from the fact that I'm the only person that's not famous on the list, uh, was <laughs> that you just don't know what kind of readers they're going to be. And I remember the first meeting I went in and thought, yeah, I'm, I know what the good books are, and I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll all agree. 
well, we didn't, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> and all the things I thought were dead certs, you realize it's a wonderful revelation of your own very subjective take on things. And it pushes you to be a more rigorous reader. But the truth about the booker is it's not really about the winner. Its value is in bringing books that may not have gotten attention into the public consciousness. You know, getting them at the front of bookshops, giving them a boost. Because reading is so subjective, there really just can't be one best book of the year. I will always be most attached to the long list because that really gave a sense of the diversity of our views. It's the kind of fruit of a lot of conversation. And I think that readers will find things in there I don't think it's just to anoint someone or anoint a novel. Mm -hmm. It's there to kind of get people to talk about fiction and think about fiction. Having a set of books is, to me, more interesting than having a winner. That said, there has to be a winner. And in a few days, Horatia and the team will be getting together in a real room, in real life, to make that decision. We will be sitting together in a room for the first time and trying to thrash out who the winner should be. Wow. I think that's going to be... a really interesting. I'm pretty nervous about it because certainly um, there are books that I would fight to the death for. And I know all the judges have favorites. It'll be the first time that we're going to actually sit together and have to look each other in the eye and <laughs> wag, our, wag our fingers at each other and do whatever it is that you do to persuade people of things. Horatia, thank you so much. I'm going to take the long list and print it out. Yes, get, get, get the long list, 13 books. That is manageable yeah. in six months. The booker used to be something different because the literary world was something different. As Jan put it. In a way, the glamour of the literary world was itself a bubble. Now, to understand how it's changed, let's dig a little deeper into how it was. We spoke with Johnny Geller. He's a high-profile literary agent and the CEO of Curtis Brown Group, which owns a few agencies. The nostalgia is not my thing. There was a lot of things that were great about growing up in agenting and publishing in the 90s, just simply because it was a bit like the Wild West. It was very undisciplined, and you could get away with a lot in terms of you know, getting books through and taking risks, which was all good. But the downside was it was all a bit amateur. And uh, I remember the first lunch I ever went on as a fully-fledged agent from Curtis Brown. I won't mention the name of the editor, but we had a four-hour lunch. And I'm not a huge drinker, but I think there were four bottles consumed. And I remember feeling at the end of the day, I can't do this job. (laughs) I just, I have to go home now and lie down. And I remember thinking you know, this surely has to stop because actually it's not about connections. It's about the quality of the book and how marketable and saleable these books are. Around that time in 1995, it sort of did stop. An agreement that fixed the price of hardcover books in the UK and Ireland collapsed, which meant big book chains and supermarkets started selling books at major discounts. So a number one book in 95 was selling around 6,000 copies, but a number one book in 2005 was selling 50,000. And while a lot of independent bookstores closed, books became more accessible, and not just in the UK. So in very short space of time, the whole industry changed. And as a result, the way you do business changed. And I think it became a lot more, I suppose, egalitarian and free because people actually had to think about what does this mean for the reader? 
But it was a really exciting time because you could start selling new writers with no track record on the strength of the pitch alone to publishers who would pay decent prices for them. So advances shot up, the industry sort of woke up overnight, and a lot of those people who had rested on lunches at the Garrick sort of became extinct dinosaurs. And all this happened before Amazon's Kindle, which came into the scene in 2007. Everybody then started to spiral into a depression of, oh my God, this is the end of publishing, this is the end of the book, they'll self-publish everything. And, and I remember thinking, no, they won't, because publishers are needed, because someone needs to filter all this material and to still say, this is a book worth reading. Believe me. You know, for all its obvious faults and flaws and, and challenges, uh, the internet has completely opened up reading. Reading groups, book blogs, communities, and there are so many challenges to authors being found, discovered, heard. I'm, I'm not painting some utopian vision of what's going on at the moment. There are huge challenges. But I have to say, it's a bit more of an open field and a level playing field than it used to be. For the authors lucky enough to get their books picked up and published, a lot has changed over these years, including promotion. My colleague Simon Cooper is a popular journalist, columnist, and best-selling author. He's written six books, and he was busy in lockdown. When the pandemic began, I kind of locked myself in a room and I, I began writing. I mean, there were days when I even worked on four books simultaneously. Simon has two books coming out this year, one on Barcelona's European football club and one on a KGB spy. And he has another coming out next year. Publishing all these books led him to reflect in a recent column on how the promotional game of this industry has really changed for authors. Well, I look back on 1994 and the Manchester Evening News reviewed my book not once but twice. I think they've oh. forgotten <laughs> that they've done it the first time. And so that's how much attention you could get from a kind of regional daily newspaper. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I felt like a real big shot and I, I read in bookshops and it must have cost the publisher way more money than these bookshop evenings brought in. But that, that's what you sort of did in those days. Today, book promotion is different. Book tours, of course, still exist, but publishers get more value from an influencer endorsing a book to their followers or blurbs from celebrities or a viral social media campaign. So for people who aren't familiar with the world of book publishing, how would you describe how things have changed for authors? Well, one very significant change is that most books are now sold on Amazon. I think about half of books in normal times and during the pandemic, that went up to about 80% were sold on Amazon. Yeah, And so it really is the dominant market force. And it also means that they can extract big discounts. The rule of thumb used to be that authors would get 10% of each book sale. So they'd make $1.50 from a $15 book. But now Amazon buys the book for a cheaper price and it gets a discount from the publisher on top of that. So the author actually walks away with even less. And so you've seen authors' earnings really collapse in, in quite a rigorous way in the last few years. And then you've also had the rise of social media. So it's very important if some famous person tweets about your book. Mm-hmm. And that, that could be much more exciting than a review was, you know, 30 years ago. It sounds like you miss those pre-internet days of going and reading in a physical place. But I also wonder if there's any value to the way it is now. Sort of what do you, what do you like and not like? Yeah, I'm not a nostalgic. I'm not someone who thinks it used to be so much better. 
I mean, one very good thing about Amazon is that book sales have held up very well. And I like that a lot. Mm. Another thing is podcasts, which you know didn't used to exist, but now you have all these specialist podcasts. So you have podcasts, for example, specifically about spying. So when I wrote The Happy Traitor, my book about George Blake, I was on these podcasts where people would talk to you very knowledgeably about the world of spying or about the KGB. Mm. And so you get to speak to people with enormous expertise who are very interested in aspects of what you write about. And that's, in a way, much more in-depth and interesting. But you can reach exactly the people you want to reach, in a mm. way, now. And also, you know, Facebook, much blind, but you can advertise on Facebook to, to people who are interested in exactly your thing. I'm curious if the, the changes to book promotion have affected your actual writing or the content of the books that you've been writing. I still very much try and write the books that I want to write. I mean, of course, publishers are influenced by what will sell. But I wonder if, you know, a publisher from 100 years ago walked into my publisher profile. I mean, that person would be a bit bemused by the talk of Amazon and search engine optimization (laughs) for titles. You know, so you don't just call your book War and Peace anymore. You call it Dating Beautiful Russian Women because that will generate more internet So the publisher will be bemused by some things, but I think in the end they would say, you know what, it's all pretty similar still. You are producing a product that maybe 10% of the population is very interested in. None of you is making a huge amount of money out of it, but you're doing it for love and because you believe that pushing forward this culture is is a kind of duty. I'd love to write a bestseller, but I don't really aspire to it. It's not, I don't aspire to getting rich from writing a book. I think that would be madness. I aspire to doing something good. And I think my publishers aspire to publishing something that's good and we'll all be able to feed and clothe ourselves. So that's sort of enough. That's the show this week. You've been listening to FD Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Please keep in touch, say hi, let me know what you're watching and reading and who you'd like to hear on the show. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. Those go straight to me. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. Next week, we're going to lunch. We're going with Danny Meyer, one of the most influential restaurateurs in the world, and we're going to Spark Steakhouse. It's a classic, and it taught him from the start of his career what it means to be an institution. This past Thursday was the FT's Next Gen Festival. It was all virtual, and it had a ton of really great, very fun panels, including an interview I did with Ruby Wax. I've got a promo code so you can watch the sessions back for free. The link and the promo code are in the show notes. Also in the show notes, as always, are links to everything mentioned and a special discount just for you on an FT Weekend subscription. We've really got the best trials and discount options in that link, which you can also find at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Please leave us a review and share the show on your Twitter or your Instagram story or with a couple of friends. That really is the best way you can support the show. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Katya Kumkova and George Drake Jr. are our senior producers. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbard-Doyen are our assistant producers with special help from Alice Fordham. Green Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley and Manuela Saragossa are our executive producers, and we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week. Music. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.